Welcome to the Comics Misremembered Podcast with your hosts Jim and John, and here's the opening music. Yes, this is Comics Misremembered, podcast uh, number 266. Hopefully you're not listening to this early in the morning and you're just waking up. <laughs> yes, that would that be Because will a, definitely get you out of bed. Uh, that well, time. actually, that might be a very rocking way to start your Sunday. If, yeah. if you are one of those people who are engaged with us, you know, on your morning tea or your coffee and your podcast as you go about your morning Yeah, that would definitely be... Get you, get, you don't need the caffeine. You have to just listen to that. Yes. But... Uh, but why did I pick that song? Uh, as always, we play a little game here. And actually, before um, we go into it, so I am one of your hosts, Jim. And I'm John. And together we talk about comics and comic-related items. Um, I did mention this is Podcast 266. And uh, we always play a piece, a piece of music that's going to be related to the topic of discussion. Um, that music just came to me in, in like a dream, a fever dream when I was thinking about what can I play? The, the topic we're going over today is Frank Miller's, uh, uh, Ronin. Yes. It's not Frank Miller's, uh, uh, Ronin. It's just Frank Miller's Ronin. I just forgot the name of the freaking book there for a second. <laughs> it's okay. But yes, Frank Miller's Ronin. And, um, the, we're going to talk about the music that played because it, it relates so well to the, the actual Ronin comic book. Uh, we play a little piece of mu- uh, music. John has not heard it, but he likes to play this game where he likes to th- name the artist and the title of the song. Right. Um, and uh, he may know the artist or not. This is just a little game that we play here at the beginning of every podcast. John. We're reminiscing about our the musical rounds when we used to play, where we used to do trivia and... Uh Back in the day when, when people used to gather together. Exactly. You know, like like that was so like 2019. Exactly. <laughs> where, where we had lives. Um, that would be uh, Clutch. Yes. And, that would, and the song would be A Shogun Named Marcus. A Shogun Named Marcus. That is correct on both counts. Do you remember the album that it came for bonus points? Isn't that uh, tradi- uh, Transitional Motor Speedway? Transnational Motor Speedway. Sorry, close. Yes. Uh, that is correct. Uh, if... Those of you who are not familiar with Clutch, um, they're a great rock band, as you heard in yes. there. A lot of the songs sound like this. Um, just because he mentions a redneck in the in the lyrics, if you go back and listen to that, don't think that they're like the Southern Fried, you know. No. They, no, you know, no, no. no these guys are very smart, um, and they have great lyrics, great songwriting. In fact, a lot of their songs, um, Neil Fallon, who's the lead singer that you heard in that, uh, a lot of the songs that he writes are based on books that he reads, and a lot of the books that he reads are based on science fiction. So you get like a lot of uh, Phil- Philip uh, K. Dick songs uh, in in there. You get songs based on Ridley Walker. I forget the writer of Ridley Walker. Now. I'm drawing a blank, but he wrote a song based on the book Ridley Walker, an obscure kind of like uh, post-apocalyptic book, which fits into what we're talking about here today. Because but, as you because as you might have noticed, we are we we may be wrapping up our post apocalyptic well, we journey, and uh, since this is the world's worst timeline, we figured we're we're pretty much trying to wrap it up with a we set it out with a bang of sorts. Um, yeah, we, we we're uh, if you've been listening for the past few weeks, we have been talking about um the uh, uh what 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 were we calling it now um 
this dysfunctional yeah the dystopian dystopian futures yes dystopian future futures aka the current event session that's right section and we started this because you know the 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 worst thing that was happening at the time when we started this was the coronavirus was keeping everybody secure so we're like okay let's go through the backlog and start doing dystopian futures because that's what it feels like of course a lot of events have happened since then and we decided we're going to power through it. And this is the last book we were going to cover. Again, it's not its not an all-encompassing every dystopian future. No, because at some point in time, we need to, we need to breathe a little sunlight back yes. into our lives and into the podcast. Yeah, so we, we're going to be changing it up next week. So this is the last one we really wanted to cover. And so it, it's uh, based on um, Frank Miller's Ronin. And uh, it, so one more thing about um, Clutch and the songwriting. So... I don't know, as I mentioned, Clutch uh, writes a lot of songs based on material that Neil Fallon has either read or seen, and I'm wondering if Ronan may have influenced uh, a shogun named Marcus. Yeah. Uh, so I'm interested, I'm, I, I almost want to reach out to him in like, you know, because you can get a, a hold of people on Twitter and everything like that, and just say like, was there anything that influenced you when you wrote that? Were you Were you reading anything, you know? And just to see what the answer would be. And just to see, like, oh, yeah, I was reading Frank Miller's stuff. And I'm like, oh, all right, then. That, that makes sense. So that is an interesting um, question, and I'll put that away. Now, the other thing I want to just draw attention to, besides, you know, all the other things that have been going on recently in, in modern times in 2020, um, there has been, uh, I want to just discuss very quickly about three great comic book-related uh, people that have recently passed away within like either in a few days or a week ago. And the funny thing is, is that uh, a couple of the people who we're going to be talking about relate to some of the history of what went into making Ronin. Now, the first person I'm going to name is uh, uh, Denny O'Neill, Dennis O'Neill. Uh, Den- Denny O'Neill um, is, is well known in the comic industry not only for uh, writing a lot of great characters and great stories. Um, if you're familiar with his work, he's done a lot of runs on Batman. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Was that his surname, Batman? Um, Batman, Green Arrow, and Green Lantern. Uh, one of the, the more famous uh, or infamous works from that is the uh, Speedy Gets Addicted to uh, Heroin. Yes. We talked about that in other podcasts. <clears throat> That was a Neil Adams collab, too, uh, with Dennis o- Denny O'Neill. And uh, The Question, and also Daredevil. They, he's written them all. He's created the character Azriel is another uh, creation that you're familiar with. Um, so, But the other thing he did is he was a great editor, too, and he worked with Frank Miller. We're going to talk about that. The other person I'm going to talk about is Joe Snot. Uh, Joe is, um, he's not going to be in the history of this comic, but he just recently passed away, in fact, on the 25th, just a few days ago. And he is well known for being one of the best inkers, uh, not only just Marvel, but in Comicton. Um, he's, his, his work was in the Silver Age. He uh, inked on Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four. He, that's where I think his most famous work is. And he's, Joe Snot is, is, a, is a character, is a, is a man who his work, he was known for inking. Like all his, He did artwork too, but he was known for inking. Not a lot of guys are like that. Like I can think of like uh, Terry Austin, uh, Scott Williams, a couple of other people. They did their whole career as as, as inkers, um, which is a rare feat nowadays. It's That's not something that somebody can necessarily do in the modern age, but I just want to call that out. And the last person who passed away, in fact, it was today. We're recording this as a Saturday. 
That was Milton Glaser. Now, Milton Glaser is not um, a comic book person per se, but he is a, a graphic designer, well known for for designing a lot of graphic things. John very, wants to say very, something. No, else. just very, a very icon. There's a lot of very iconic images that you are aware of. If you if you um, if you're not familiar with the name, you'd be very familiar with the work. Yes. And um, for the comic purposes, the thing that you're definitely going to be uh, familiar with him is he designed the DC Bullet, uh, which is probably, if you can ask people what DC logo do you like the best, nine out of ten times people are going to say the DC Bullet. Um, there's some other maybe Silver Age logos people like, but I, I think that one's the best. And it's, it's, I'm going to share a story as we go through the history of Frank Miller and his Ronin work um, regarding um, Milton Glaser. In fact, I was planning to share it, but... I mean, unfortunately, he passed away today. I was going to mention his name in the story, but it's just like kind of a synchronicity happening here. Maybe not so great, but it's it's happening. It Something's is 2020. On. We live in the world's worst timeline. Exactly. So um, I just want to acknowledge these three great men who have passed away, and we'll move on to talking about Frank Miller's Ronin, because that's the reason why you tuned in, right? And so we're going to be talking about... Um, so if you're not familiar with Frank Miller's Ronin, it was published by DC back in 1983, and it ran for six issues, and the issues were um, these prestige formats, and they took forever to come out, so it ended in August 1984. So it was almost like a full year. Um, that it, For six issues, it took like two months to produce yeah, every, one issue. It, every other month, which is, a, which is another staple of any... Any project that Frank Miller's on, exactly. Well, not necessarily, but it, I, you're gonna be, when we start talking about the art style, you're gonna understand why it took so long for these things to come out. So Frank did do both the um, the writing and the art for this, and this is part of his early comic book work. He's been working. Uh, 1983 is he hasn't. He's coming up. People are starting to know him. This is pre Dark Knight Returns, pre Batman Year One. Um, and we're going to talk about how did DC, when he was working with Marvel for so long, how did he start working for DC? So let's talk about the history of this book first. Uh, I did a little back research for it. And in fact, um, we talked about this. We did, a, a, I think it was a two-part podcast very early on when we started this podcast. Mm -hmm. We did um, a Frank Miller kind of tribute. Retrospective. Yeah, retrospective. And we did two podcasts and we talked about all of the stuff we, because we, we, we like Frank Miller here at yes. the podcast. And um, we talked about all the stuff that he did. Now, this is just a you know sliver. Ronan's just a sliver of that. But if you um, if you haven't listened to all our podcasts, definitely go back. Type in Frank Miller in the search engine there. If you go to our website, just type in Frank Miller in the search bar, and you'll find the two-parter that we did for him. That We had a hilarious time when we were writing that <laughs> yes, one. We did. Okay, so here's the history of this book. So back in 1981, uh, Daredevil was a low-selling title. Frank Miller was drawing it, but he was frustrated with the writer, Roger McKenzie. Uh, he approached his editor, editor Denny O'Neill at the time, explaining that he wanted to take over both writing and the art. O'Neill remembered a short story that he wrote, so and he asked him to pitch him some ideas. And so Miller pitched him like the things that he was thinking of, which a lot of them are Eastern influence, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. So Denny wanted to take a chance. He's like, okay. He's like, you know, the book's low selling. It could, let's give this kid a chance. He's got go a lot down, of in it. Right? Yeah. He's doing the art. People love the art. Um, it can't get worse, right? Right. So he says, okay, go, go ahead, kid. And um, and then he talks to Rod. And this is a time where the ed editor could just go to the writer and just say, look, you're not writing the book anymore. You're, you're going to go write something else. Go find something else to do. You couldn't get away with stuff like this nowadays. Like, 
there would probably be a systematic process that you'd have to go through. Yeah, you'd have. They just cancel the book. <clears throat> like they wouldn't try to save the book. They would just cancel the book and move on. But this is what they did. So I said, Frank Miller, okay, Frank, go ahead. You're going to write and, and draw now. And he's like, great. Now, when Miller was um, pitching his uh, ideas, he was at the time really into like Eastern philosophy and culture. Uh, some of the things that he was doing, he loved Kung Fu movies. Who doesn't like it? But this is like, you know, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, there was a lot of Kung Fu cinema out there that you could purchase and watch on VHS. Um, it's not like the internet. Now you could just watch anything you wanted, but back in the day you would purchase a whole bunch of movies, bring them over. Yeah. It would, you could just go to like one of the black market shops in Chinatown and pick up like some of the great, some of like the greatest movies ever made, you know, like two or three uh, movies on one, on one tape, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, copyright. Three, um, yeah. Three, three yeah, pirated right. movies for five. <laughs> exactly. And, um, he's also reading Lone Wolf and Cub, the original manga. This is not translated. It's all in Japanese. He just loves the art style, and he can follow the story by the art style. And also, he he loves ninjas. Like Frank Miller loves ninjas. He 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 loves that whole like mysterious person who can do mysterious things and kill people. Um, ninja assassin. So um, he pitches the idea, and so he he creates characters like Stick. It, this is Daredevil. So he creates characters like Stick, who is a kung fu ma- a blind kung fu master that a. Uh, Young Matt Murdock meets, and he was able to learn his kung fu style through stick. Uh, he also invite, invents a, um, a villainous group of ninja assassins called the Hand. Uh, he also creates Electra, a Greek-born ninja assassin, and also a love interest for Daredevil. Daredevil, and it's also a strong female character. This is something that Frank Miller is known for as well. And... It, it, you've heard us uh, talk about this in other podcasts, but Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles yes. was heavily influenced on these right. three characters. Because you have Splinter and the foot. Yeah. So, so you have <laughs> Stick, which is Splinter in the comics, uh, Ninja Turtles, and then you have the hand, which is the foot in the Ninja Turtles comic. So did, we, we talked about that before. Um. So in 82, he would go on... Uh, so he starts writing Daredevil, starts becoming popular, starts selling. Uh. In 1982, so a year later, he's on a, like a trip. He's, he, I think he went to like a Comic-Con, like San Diego Comic-Con, and he's with Chris Claremont because all the Marvel people were together. And he's with Chris Claremont. They're driving back to the hotel, and it's a long drive, and Chris Claremont starts talking to Frank, and Frank's going on about like the Eastern philosophy and ninjas and stuff. And Chris Claremont's like, I would love to write like a book like that, but have like an X-Men character in it, like Wolverine. And so Frank's like, oh, this is what I would do with Wolverine. And he starts talking about the what would be known as the Wolverine limited series through yes, Marvel. One of the great four-issue limited series of all time. Which we may be talking about very soon in a soon podcast. And um, and so like a lot of that influence that you read in that, uh, that miniseries is like ninjas and samurai warriors. So 1983, Miller had an idea for his own story that focused on life of a samurai called a ronin. Um... On the reason why he chose the name Ronin, this is what he said in an interview. The aspect of the samurai that intrigues me the the most is the Ronin, the masterless samurai, the fallen warrior. This entire project comes from a feeling that we are modern men, are Ronin. We're kind of cut loose. I don't get the feeling from people I know, the people that I see on the street, that they have something greater than themselves to believe in. Patriotism, religion, whatever. They all lost their meaning. That all lost their meaning to us. So he's you know, he's, he's, that's his philosophy is like modern man is everybody's a Ronin. Nobody's bound to any kind of honor system and they're all out for themselves. It's thieves. 
Yeah, the, and the whole thing about the, the whole thing about it is also makes sense because the you know the sixties was the, the was the you know those the, the women's rights move movement the first wave of of the equal rights you know for um, and also for civil rights for the for um, and people kind of it was a and it was a time of of creative destruction because as as that sort of atomized into the culture people felt less and less connected to each other and some of the institutions that they had belonged to. Um, the labor unions were, were fragmenting. There was a lot of traditions kind of like went a little way. So that was, so the eighties was really a time of, of a lot of displacement also uh, heavily influenced by a lot of the people who had come back and were really disillusioned about what happened in Vietnam. And so. then, um, so that could all factor into it. Uh, but then it goes on. He has this idea about like, I want to write something about Ronan. So originally, the the Marvel's editor in chief at the time, Jim Shooter, wanted uh, Miller to produce Ronan as an original graphic novel. So this is something that they were doing at the time, and um, but that did not happen. Miller was swayed by DC editor in chief Jeanette Kahn to publish the story of DC as as one of their prestige series books. And the prestige series books were printed on high glossy paper. They were forty eight pages, no ads. Um, Khan gave Miller total creative control to write the story that he wanted to write. Now, uh, the funny thing is, is like um, I just mentioned the two editors at the time, Jim Shooter and Jeanette Khan. <clears throat> Jim Shooter was notoriously hated at the end of his career in Marvel because of like his, I guess he he can be a tyrant at sometimes, and we might have to do a podcast on his life uh, at some point. We've talked about him in other. Yeah, things. we've we've talked a lot of we've talked about him and his editorial style in regards to uh, Secret Wars. Yeah, but in the particular. the um, the majority of the people that work for him hated him so much is that Jim Shooter was known for creating the new universe, and the new universe didn't sell well. We talked about the new universe in a podcast. Yeah. The new universe didn't sell well, and at the end of it, after Jim Shooter was fired, and they were going to cancel the whole new universe, they created a one issue series <clears throat> called The Pit, which is. Uh, the destruction of Pittsburgh, they just called the pit. And the reason why they did that is that's the hometown of Jim Shooter, is Pittsburgh. <laughs> nice. So that's a little side story, uh, if you don't know that. Um, but th so he's kind of like, you know, not a not many good things are being said about Jim Shooter. But he's yeah, not all bad. Like, if we did a whole podcast, I'm, we can do it. But I want to talk about um, Jeanette Kahn for a second, because she's almost has like this perfect relationship as being an editor at the time, because she got in there, I think it was like, the early 80s, and she started changing things up. She wanted to put new books out. Um, one of the most iconic things that she did do is she changed the logo to the DC Bullet. She ah, wanted she wanted she wanted to have something different um, for the for the logo. She thought it was too the way that the original logo was. Um, she hired uh, Milton Glaser, and he came up with the logo, the DC Bullet, and that's when they started using it. In fact. Um, the trade that we read is is it's old enough. It came out in two thousand. It's old enough that it still had the DC Bullet logo. I'm showing John the cover of the trade, and I'm covering it with yes, my thumb indeed. so he can't see it. So there's the DC logo. I'll post a picture of this on the website when we when we post this up. Um, but so that's the most iconic thing. Now, of course, DC can't use the Bullet logo anymore because they they're stupid enough that they sued themselves out of using it, and that's something <laughs> a story for another time. Yes. Um, maybe, you know, maybe when we talk about, we could do like a podcast on Jeanette Glazer. I mean, Jeanette, Jeanette Kahn. The, uh, other story that we, we talked about recently when we do the, when we did the Swamp Thing review. Yes. Jeanette, I was talking about the history of the comic and Jeanette Kahn stopped the publication of, um, 
the swamp thing was supposed to travel through time and meet Jesus. Yes. And she stopped that because at the time there was it was to the uh, last l- last edition of Christ. Yes, exactly. Last you remember the story. Of crime of Christ came out and it was very controversial. So yeah, yeah. So, like, so the, uh, that was not. maybe one thing that Rick Veach who probably hates her because of that because he he was he was writing it and that was his story. But it, other than that, like a lot of other people um, like her, uh, so she's really real, well known. So I just wanted to share that quick story. Um, so Miller meets Jeanette Con, likes Jeanette Con, likes the things that she's saying. Start not starting to like DC so much, not so much for Jim Shooter, but also uh, since. As time goes on, Frank Miller starts to really hate Marvel, not only because it, they don't really have a lot of creative rights given to owners, um, but also because how poorly Jack Kirby was treated uh, through Marvel about like giving original artwork back. And it lives, as time goes on, like Frank would just go on to hate and hate. Like he comes back to do like more Daredevil stuff, but eventually he won't come back at all because he's just like I hate Marvel. Like in the '90s, he just like forget. Marvel. He's also forget like DC, but he comes back to DC every every once in a while. So that's some history. If you didn't know about Frank Miller, um, as you read through Ronin, uh, it's told in both the past and the future, mostly in the future. The future version of Ronin um, has these kind of cyberpunk elements to it, so you can expect um, that the visual influence was probably. Uh, influenced by Katsuhiro Otomo's Akira, which is a podcast we did recently. Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, which just recently celebrated, I think it's 36th or 38th anniversary, because it came out in 82. Put it to you this way. It's old enough that Roy Beatty celebrated his birthday. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's it, it went so, so, so much in the future. There was a scene, um, there's a scene in the second issue that's heavily influenced by uh, Yojimbo, a movie called Yojimbo, which came out in 61. That was a Japanese samurai film directed by Akira Kurosawa. If you don't know the name, go look it up. He's made a lot of great movies. It uh, tells a story about a ronin portrayed by uh, Toshihiro Mifune. Uh, also very well-known samurai actor, and or actor in general, who arrives in a small town where there's com- uh, competing crime lords that vie for supremacy. Two bosses try to hire the newcomer as the bodyguard, and the Ronin betrays them both, and the crime families basically decimate each other. Uh, that's not a spoiler. That's That's been a, a, around. In fact, they did a remake of that with a movie with Bruce Willis in it. Um, the Oh, I can't remember the, the movie now. The uh, the, the town of... Oh, it, it's got a stupid name. I can't... I'll, I'll type it in the podcast. When, when in the, but it, the, there's a remake. The remake's pretty good, too. Not the... the crap on it but it's it's um bruce willis goes to like a uh, this is like 1936 before uh, vegas existed and there's these two small towns that live next to each other and he's like this hitman he goes there and he meets with the first gang and then they're like oh can you kill these other guys because if you get rid of them we can get all the property so he goes over meets them they're like hey if you kill those guys we can get all the property and he gets them to kill each other and he gets all the money at the end of it nice yes so um uh, you'll see that as we talk about the the comic itself now, we talked a little bit about the history. John's going to give us a little synopsis. So if you're not familiar with Ronin, this is what you can expect if you wanted to read it, if you haven't read it. Yes. In this tale of a, of a legendary warrior, the Ronin, a dis, dishonored, masterless 13th century samurai, is, mis, is mystically given a second chance to avenge his master's death, suddenly finding himself reborn in a futuristic and corrupt 21st century New York City, 
The samurai discovers that he has one last chance to regain his honor. He must defeat the reincarnation of his master's killer, the ancient demon Agat. In a time and place foreign and unfathomable to him, the ronin stands against his greatest enemy with his life and, most importantly, his soul at stake. Mm-hmm. I think I pulled that from DC's website because um, you can get the digital version of Ronin trade paperback. Um, and I think it's like 20 bucks for the digital version. Here's a great thing. If you did want to read it, a physical copy, you can, they've, they've published this, they've yeah. reprinted it. Um, it's probably in it's like 12th printing at this point, um, but you can purchase it and, and it's probably going to, the physical version of it is probably going to get you um, $20 or cheaper. And it's funny how I came across it. Okay. So my story about how I came across this copy that we read is I go to my local comic book store, you know, every week, and uh, they always have sales on trades. And sometimes, like, you know, right by the counter when you're checking out, they'll have, like, the latest. Whatever. So this was a few years back. This is, like, um, maybe, like, late 90s. They had it on there, and it said Frank Miller's Ronin. Now, I've been collecting comics, like, since the early 80s. And I wasn't, I didn't know about this. Like, when I was a kid... Back in like the early '80s, I wasn't looking for Frank Miller. Right. I was looking for like Rom and Captain Carrot. So the I zoo crew. That, in fact, that's the reason why I picked up Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because it was an animal named comic book. I didn't know what it was, so I picked it up. I wouldn't know about Frank Miller until much later, uh, like you know my my late teens and my twenties. That's when I'm like, oh, I know who Frank Miller. I want to read Frank Miller stuff. But I happen to be in a comic book shop. I had to see this trade, the Ronin. You know, so then it doesn't even register. I was like, I don't even know what this is. I don't even, I didn't even know this existed. Even at that point, because this is like, you know, I'm in my 30s at this point. So I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm going to, they had it on a cheap price. I think it was like half price. It was probably 10 bucks. So I'm going to pick it up. And I start um, uh, flipping through it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a pretty good read. You know, the Frank Miller's Road. The, the other funny thing too is uh, I sometimes will pick up, they'll have like pamphlets and stuff about upcoming events, you know, there. And I'll pick something up because I like to use that as kind of a um, book holder, bookmark. So I picked one up and I put it in the front jacket of this comic. And so when I went back to read it, it fell out. And it said DC's Powerhouse. And it had like all these characters that they were revamping for like this new line of DC characters. And I'm like... Who the hell's powerhouse? This is like an early two thousand. Yeah, uh, so it must have been like two thousand when I picked up the book, and they they were going to create this um, group of characters called the powerhouse, and they had like these different names. The only one, the only most of them were original properties. The only one I recognized was Manhunter, um, not Martian Manhunter, like the original the man, the human Manhunter. Yes. Um, and so I thought that was funny. I was just like, oh yeah, let me see if I can even find any of these power power uh, house books or whatever it was called power company i'm sorry it was called power company oh god the power company so i have to go and, and like look to see if i can find <laughs> something like that i'll probably put this in the in the the website too and when you like this. you typed it in and it was like and all of a sudden there was a video with you know with simon Lebon. no no uh, what's his name uh, singing from um some like yeah the, that's the, the, uh i didn't mean to turn you on yeah, yeah. you uh always dressed in a certain tie robert palmer robert palmer yeah yeah yeah. And the guy from, and the guitarist from, uh, Duran Duran. From Duran Duran, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, that's, the, hey, the power company. So I thought that was just funny. Now, John, you had mentioned to me before this podcast yeah. is that you read this comic as, as a kid. So, or when it originally came out? No, slightly after. Oh, so you um, read the trade? I read, the, so yeah, I read the, I read a trade. Um, so this is, this is a very appropriate, this is a very appropriate little story because it, it involves, um, one of the things that 
that got spawned by all of the things that Frank Miller loved. Um, I was hanging out with uh, about, let's see, about six or seven people, actually, that my original gaming crew, mm-hmm. plus, uh, some of the, plus some of the people from New York. Um, as you know, I'm huge. We, we were, I'm a huge, originally huge tabletop gamer. And so this is like 1992 and my friend Luke is living in New York city and we're, he's got this great apartment in alphabet city, right. You know, just, you know, where before it became a big place and got gentrified. So it was still kind of like a mixed neighborhood, you know, Korean grocery stores, like great burrito place down the street, you know, but still in the heart of everything. Mm -hmm. And we did a one week, I think it was like, yeah, it was like five day, like marathon campaign for Shadow for Shadowrun, which is, you know, one of the original, which is the uh, sort of hybrid, much like Ronin, which involves magic and technology. Um, And while I, my character was, um, I had been a total bleeping moron, I got uh, captured and my character was taken out of, out of, out of the story. Um, so I had, so I had some time on my hand. Um, I, one of, uh, one of, one of our, one of our friends, um, Bob said, Hey, why don't you read this? And Bob, Bob gave me, uh, the trade, the trade for, for Ronan. And while I was busy wait, waiting for them to come up with a way for, to introduce a new character back into the game so that I could keep, so that I could keep enjoying playing with my friends, um, I had a chance to read it. And of course it was, it was perfect because it, you know, it was New York city. It was summer. It was a great time. Everybody was together. It was, uh, it was awesome. And it was, and, and I think maybe that's probably why I had a much different sort of experience, uh, reading it the first time that I did the second. So what was your experience the first time? So I really enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah, it was just, but it was very, it was very, it was, it seemed much more, it seemed much more intense probably because of everything else that was going on. I was in that frame of reference, you know, I had, you know, I had, so been, did you, you have a different I had been feeling playing, for it I had now? been playing, yeah, I had been literally playing a street samurai. Um, no, what I'm saying is, do you have a different feeling? For, you yeah. don't have to say exactly what you feel yes, now. Yes, I have a, I have a very different feeling okay. problem. All right. So we, we've both read it in the past or relatively past for me. Well, yeah, like, well, my mine was like about like you know twelve years ago now. Yeah, um, almost twenty years ago. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> it's, it's like two thousand. It was early. Yeah, I was gonna say like so the um so yeah we both have different uh, interpretations. We read it once a while ago. Now we're reading it again. Do we have different feelings about what we read? So we're going to talk about that. Now, sure. spoiler, uh, I don't know what we're going to talk about because, you know, we just opened up the forum between both of us and we start talking about ideas and how the story goes. So potential spoilers are going to be in this part. If you haven't read this over 35-year-old comic book, um, you, you may you may get spoiled. I, the funny thing is, is I, I don't think it's too spoilery because, like, a lot of the ideas and the big twist that happens at the end of the comic have been done a million times and right. like through other mediums and other comics and movies. So I don't find it too spoily, but if you don't, if you want to go in with open eyes, um, this you would know. be the, this would be the point where I give the warning, which is please turn off your pot, this podcast, finish reading it and then come back and enjoy it with us. Yes, exactly. Then you come back at the halfway point and listen to the rest of the podcast where we talk about the actual story. Okay. We got that out of the way. Let's get into it. Um, we're going to be talking about the art. Uh, we'll talk about the story. Um, so we can jump around and we don't necessarily so, have to be linear when we talk about yeah, the story. I, I actually, I actually do like the idea of, um, 
of, of, of do, doing a jump off, which is graphically, this was very different from a lot of the other things that I had been reading. Mm -hmm. um, there was, it, it, it uses a particular art style. I don't know if you want to talk about that. The, well, the, so Frank Miller is always experimenting with art. Um, at, as you can see, if you look through the body of his, his comic book work, uh, at this time, you know, he was doing uh, Daredevil, as we mentioned, and I think he wants to, this is a more mature story. It, it, you know, it's, it, it's a hard R, if it's a rated R movie, it's a hard, oh, yeah. it's a hard R movie. Um, he uses, you know, violence, uh, profanity, there's also brief nudity in the book. So he wants to portray that in a more mature way. And so he's trying different art styles. One of the things he's doing is hashing and also uh, cross-hashing, which is a different is a variation of it. But that's that's what he tries to do. Now, if you don't if you're not familiar with what the term hashing or cross-hashing is, um, the art style can be described as uh, hashing comes from the French. Um, it's an artistic technique used to create a tonal or shading effect by drawing or painting or, or scribing close space parallel lines. It's also used in um, a monochromatic heraldic representations to indicate what is the tincture tincture of full color emblazon. Emblazon. Emblazon would be when lines are placed at an angle to one another. It's also called cross hashing. Um, yeah, I stole this from. Uh, Wikipedia. Uh, if I wanted to get a different definition, now the one of the when I think of cross-hashing yes. and somebody who <laughs> who brings this to like to the next level, Frank Miller is trying to do it here. But there's an Italian comic artist called Paolo. Um, I'm going to pronounce his name terrible. So uh, Paolo Elutri Sapiri. 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 Paolo Sapiri, and you may not recognize that name. Um, he, but he did this series in in heavy metal at the time. Yes, it's, it's been collected in uh, trades called the Druna Saga. Yeah, and he draws these like he was into painting, and he, I guess painting wasn't paying off for him. But he wanted to tell these stories, so he starts doing like you know pencil work, and these pencil work are kind of like you know the the greatest artwork you've ever seen. It, it's almost like like one of the masters, like Leonardo da Vinci, something yeah, like that. He he is in with no with no small way he for his for his craft and his style. Yep, he is he would be one of the modern art masters, right? Of his art, and so he starts publishing this in. It comes over here in heavy metal, right? And this is like in the late seventies. That's when his work starts getting published here. Now I'm I'm sure Frank Miller's like looking at this, and of he's like, of course, he's like, oh, this, how does he do it? He's like, look at this cross hashing. And, and, and cross-hashing is, it's not an easy thing to do. No. It's, it's a lot of little lines. It's its like, it's almost like negative spacing, but using just lots of tiny little lines. Yeah. it It's, it's, it's like, you know, if you're, if you kind of, if you kind of think about pointillism where you're, we're using a lot of little dots, it's doing, it does the same sort of thing with, it does the same sort of thing with, with line. Yeah. But you're right. And um, like uh, Frank Cho right now, he's, he's producing these really uh, beautiful art books and he's using cross hashing in in the last couple of books. Fantastic! It's, it's like he must spend like hours just doing these one portrait that yeah. he puts in the book, and so you you can understand why he doesn't do comic books anymore. He's spending all his time just doing these one these portraits for these art books that he's putting out. But Frank Miller is trying to do this. So again, we mentioned about it's six issues that came out over the course of a year, and as it, here's the funny thing: 
as you read the comic, cross-hashing is definitely there in issue one. It's still kind of there in issue two, but by three and four, it's gone. <laughs> it's, well, he's, he's just like, I'm yeah. just doing straight. Like, I got to get these books out. And also, and also, there's a lot of dark panels. <laughs> there's a whole section of one well, the, of the, the, in, in issue. That's the funny thing that you mentioned that because it's in issues three and four. Yeah. So these must be the the. I'm sorry. It's, it's six issues over the course of years. So issues one, two, and three very artistic. Three, four, and five. Not so Lots much. of black, black just like negative spaces <laughs> yeah, or, say, yeah. or black panels where there's nothing, just dialogue in boxes. And then, and because Frank's like, oh, how am I going to write this? The other thing that he did supposedly is that Frank Miller storyboarded this entire comic book before he started drawing it. Oh, wow. So he must have shown, you know, Jinnicon, hey, this is what I want to yeah. do. Here's the storyboards. She was like, oh, that looks good. But then when he started actually putting the panels down, he's like, oh, I don't like the way that the storyboard's going because it doesn't make sense in the comic that I'm drawing. So we would edit like on the fly as he started, starts doing them. And um, and I like, so talking cross-hashing, you see that, he's, you see, in fact, you'll also see that he's doing like these negative images where, you know, the character, the background's all black yeah. and the characters are all white and negative spacing. So you, you and, would which is this, known for Sin City. I was going to say this is, this is technique in, in particular, one of my favorite Sin City stories of all, Silent, uh, Silent Night. Well, they're all like that. They're all no, like I know, but it's like it's the one where it's it's very it's very particular. Because okay, I just loved it. Uh, no, yeah, that's it is a good story, and but you'll see that as you read this comic book, there are a couple of panels that's just like, oh yeah, this is where he's messing around with different art types. You know, it's here, and it's also it's also interesting to watch. It's also interesting, sorry, to to read this comic as a fan of as a fan fan of um, Frank Miller and you know and of um, Sin City. To see some of these these things that he obviously was working on become perfected, right? So there's a lot of the lot of the, the lot of the uh, the the germination for the these ideas that later were implemented in Sin City take you know he got you know and develop started developing here, right? So it's a sort of as a historical piece of work, it's actually really good. Yep, and uh, so the art the art is definitely. Um, Different. You'll see the the influences that he's going to later use in other comic books, but I just I really that caught my eye the cro the cross hashing because you can see he's like trying to use it on every single panel, because the way that the story starts is it takes place in um, feudal Japan. Yes, and it's it's the story about a lord and he has a sword and this it's called the demonic sword and he tells his his uh, samurai warriors protecting him as a retainer that um like oh I got this sword I battled a demon. Who's a, a got? Is that what the yes, I got. I got. I battled him and I, I stole the sword from him. And he's always trying to chase me. He's a shapeshifter and he's always trying to catch me. So I have that that the sword by my side in case he might try to come after me. And Ronan's like, well, don't worry. I am your sworn protector. Nothing's going to happen to you, Lord. Um, I am going to protect you no matter what. And like, uh, in fact, he's out and they're out in a graveyard. And mm -hmm. he's like, I think we're too far away from the, you know, the castle. We should go back. You shouldn't be this far out. With just one samurai warrior, you've got enemies, sir. And uh, Lord Ozaka is is the character. He's like, don't worry about it. He's like, I, I can protect myself. And as they're out in the graveyard, of course, these kind of ninjas pop up, samurais, yes. ninja samurais, and they attack them. And they um, they they, take, they fend off the bad guys. But then the Lord Lord Ozaka is kind of like admonishing him because he threw his sword away to, to kill one of the guys, and the Lord had to kill the third guy. <laughs> um, so that's how it starts. Yes, you never throw away your sword. And um, but going back to the outside, this is all kind of cross hash. Um, 
Lynn Varney is doing the uh, the coloring of it, which is uh, Frank Miller's wife, and uh, she, she's worked on multiple projects with him. Uh, but you can see it has these really natural tones. He's drawing this natural, like you know, out in the fields. You can see the fireflies, the ancient Japanese headstones yeah, in the graveyard. He's doing a very loving rendition of every samurai movie you've seen. That yeah, that, that he's ever seen. He's putting in his, into into this comic. So the first half of the comic is like that. Tells the story about this ancient samurai. Now, of course, Lord Ozaka gets killed in in this story. There's the first spoiler. Oh, uh, and um, because what happens is a god is a shape changer, and he's um, the Lord is is he's like oh one of this, these guys come in and say oh we got you a ge- geisha girl, and then he goes ah see the geisha girl and then this really beautiful woman dancing in front of the Lord and he's like I'm gonna take her with me. And he says, don't get, and he tells the, the Ronin, he's like, don't get your any hopes up because I'm going to be taking her. He's like, oh, I wouldn't even think of it. So he goes, what the hell's the matter with you? Of course you should be thinking about it. It's a beautiful woman. He's like yelling at him right. again, teaching him. He's like, don't be so serious all the time. You got to have like some fun in your life. So he goes and takes the woman back. And this is. But he sh- also forbids him from following him because he was going to yeah, be well, out. Can- yeah, because he was going, he was like. He's like, well, I it's my duty to protect you, right? And he's and the, the Lord's like, uh, excuse me, no, <laughs> you're not protecting me in here. There's some, you know, there's gonna be some loving going on down. <laughs> there's, there's gonna be some sword gonna, fighting going on in be, here. I was gonna say it's Dennis, it's Dennis Eckersley time. <laughs> Nobody's gonna get that reference. Sorry, nobody's gonna get that reference unless you live in New England. Got to got to make it more global. Sorry, I'm a little, I'm still I'm a little provincial. Pardon yeah. me. So you went and throw some cheddar lines in there? Uh, he's going to say about his moss. Yeah. Okay, let's get off the Dennis Eckersley stuff. <laughs> All right, so so he goes in there and he goes, ah, it's the... And so the, the, the Ronin who's sitting... Because you don't know his name. We just call him the Ronin because he's never he been a, given a formal name. Right. Um. So he wasn't a Ronin at that time. He was a retainer. But now now he, he something happens. He goes into there. And as he goes into the bedroom, he sees his uh, lord is dead. He sees a god in its f- full form. Kind of like um, giant, muscular. Yes, bone. It got all these spurs coming out of his yeah, body. He's, he's sort of, he's sort of a, he's sort of a variation on on of, of an oni. Yeah. Well, yeah, a demon. Yeah. yeah, that's what he is. He's a demon, and um, he's like, I can't find the sword, and he's like, Ah, but I, he's like, I'm gonna kill you, Ronin. Uh, and but there's other samurai start coming, and he's like, ah, I can't fight you all at once. So he, he jumps out the window and gets away. And then um, the the Lord uh, comes back to the Ronin in a fire, and he t- he says, hey, "You have to, you know, get my honor. You have to, you 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 you're gonna you're not you're gonna be your Ronin for until you gain your honor back. So you have to kill a god." Okay, yeah, we're gonna do that. So he wanders Japan, going from town to town, and um, he meets like a woman and her child, and sh- they were they got kicked out of a town. Right, and this, is years, line, this is years later. Yeah, this is years later. And you figure out that by the by the by the date that this is this might be his son. No, no, no that's not at all. Oh, I'm so the, the the whole point of the mentioning the woman and child is, um, in order in order for the sword to work and to kill a god, it has to be bathed in the blood of a um righteous. innocent. Yeah, oh, and, an, not a righteous, an innocent, innocent. Yes, an innocent person. And so. This woman comes in and she's um, she she says I I can't get into this town they won't let me in because I have I'm out she has a, a child out of wedlock which That's is right. looked at down upon so he takes her he says don't worry I'll protect you we'll walk to the next town and he tells her the story about why he's a Ronin and, and that he's 
going to protect it. And he says, I need to bathe the sword in the blood of innocent. And he looks at the child and she's like, you're not going to kill my baby, are you? And he's like, no, no, don't worry. Your baby's safe. I have other people that I have to, I can use the sword on. He's too young and he's not innocent. Right. Because he's born out of wedlock. Yeah. And um, so he, there's there's little story there, and then he finally meets a god. They have a standoff, and the innocent that he uses is himself, yes. uh, basically, because he's he's never, you know, he's always been pure of mind, pure of body. So he takes the sword, and he's also when you're a Ronin, supposedly what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to do the ritual of sepulchre, which is if your lord and master dies, you're supposed so, to follow him. Yeah, you're supposed to die too. So you take the sword, you stick it in you, you tear it across your midsection there. It's a ritual art. So he's going to do this. He's going to kill a god, and then he's going to commit seppuku, and then honor's restored upon everybody. So he does this, um, but some, a magic spell happens at the time, and they both get consumed into the sword, and their uh, souls get kind of dispersed across like time. Well, they, they, there was time for one last curse, and it's yeah. and, and the what the and the samurai said, "I'm not releasing the the lords." And uh, Lord says, "I'm not releasing you. There's still one way for you to earn your redemption." Right. And so we get in. So that's the setup about like where does the sword come from? Who are these people? So now we get fast forward to the future, and you meet the box maker. The uh, the box maker. Yes. The the um the disabled the disabled man who is. What, what's the box maker reference for? I, I I didn't get the reference. No, I was I was it's Wintermute from um from from Neuromancer? From Neuromancer. Wintermute I thought was a, a computer program. Wintermute is a computer program. Right. But he, but remember how he made all these int- very intricate boxes with like these little dioramas and and anyway, there's a, there, sorry, my I, it's too long to okay. explain. But he meets this. Oh. He meets. I'm sorry. But he he meets. Uh, he, who he meets is. Billy, I thought, you, I thought is, you were talking about Box from uh, Alpha Flight. No, is Billy Chalice, uh, a limbless man who's capable of psionically uh, controlling the Aquarius biotechnology. And what he is at the currently doing at the time is he's testing uh, these these biomechanical prosthesis. Yeah. Because he's he's sort of limbless. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. These. This is all true. So Billy Chalice is. Um, he's. He, he he's limbless and he also has um kind of a learning disability too um and but he's he's perfect for what they're trying to do with this new technology that they have and the technology they call it biocircuitry i think mm-hmm. um i kept on calling it biotechnology it, you know the, the funny thing is is like this is 1982 so there's not terms like nano uh, tech um that exist at the time but but I bet you if this was rewritten today, right. that's what they would call it. They would call it nanotech because essentially it is circuitry that is living and it grows and it can adapt and it can be made into anything. So it's a it's really technologically advanced piece of circuitry, if you think about it. Now, the other thing that you learn about not only about the circuitry and about Billy, who's testing it, so he has no limbs on it, but he, he can, he, for his body type, and there's also a secret about Billy, right. um, that, that allows him to take this living circuitry, bond it to his body, and give him arms and legs so he can walk around. And so they're showing this to some of the buyers that they're trying to get from, from who are also from Japan, because they're in New York City, America. Right. And uh, they're sh- trying to show it off. And then the, the buyers who were from this uh, corporation called the Sawat, Sawat Corporation, they're like, oh, yes, this is very good. Um, and they, I think one of them mentions about the military applications. Now the the person who's funding this is uh, Mr. Target, Mr. McTaggart. 
And Mr. McTaggart is like, no, 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 no. There's no military applications for this because this kind of technology, who knows what kind of destruction it could reap. But we're using this only for like healing and medical and all this other great stuff that could right. benefit society. And, oh, okay, all right. So well, yeah, but we still want to invest. Okay, great. So the, we get these kind of characters introduced. It all makes sense because they live in this, and they call it the Aquarius Project. It's like this giant dome that's made out of this material. Yeah, he they they live in it's an arc, it's an arcology, you know, yep. like, you know where where it's a corporate arcology where everybody is everybody who lives there works there and is all under the under the control of the of this of this Aquarius corporation that seems very very um, beneficent. Yes. Most definitely. And um, so there's a, there's a dome, and it's located in New York City. Now, the other thing that you learn, and not in so many words, but New York City, which I think much like America, is a shithole at this point. Well, it's, well, it's, a, York, it's definitely, uh, you know. New York City is exactly what it's always been, which is these wonderfully rich, powerful enclaves where the, well, where the wealthy live, which are really nice spaces, and then the rest of New York City, which is kind of a pit. Okay. That's one way of looking at it, I guess. No, I mean historically, that's <laughs> what, that's what happens. It's it's very. Well, it's, well, come it's, on, it's, the, these there are mutants living there. Gangs roam the streets. There's no such thing as police anymore. There's no civil. Oh no, I'm just services. no, no, no. So I, you're saying that's what New York is right now? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just simply saying that it's 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 just, it's it's always been very economic. It's always been very economically stratified with very nice parts and mixed in with very bad parts. Right. And um, but that's that's what it is now. Frank doesn't go into a lot of, and I call him Frank because he's a he's a dear friend. Hey, he's Frank. He's Frank. So uh, Frank Miller doesn't go into a lot of uh, like what happened in the future. We, Not at all. We uh, what we learn through the dialogue of the characters is that this is the 21st century. Um, I get. I'm gonna say it's it's early in the 21st century because I think there's something like it that reference like 2018 or something like that. I want to say so. It's early in the 21st century. But again, this is written in 1982. Yeah. So the 21st century seems like if I if I if I'm in 1982 and I mentioned 2018, that seems like a long time because that's over 35 years and, in the future. And in and in 20 in it and at that time we had hopes for um, a a sort of a more technologically in, inspired utopian world. Yes. But instead, uh, we we have this dystopian societies that that go on. Now we have about. Ten minutes left ah. uh, to go through through the story, so let's see what we can do, um, or if if we we feel that there's enough material, we will do continue of the podcast. Well, what I, what I would what happens is that these characters, these two these two pivotal characters, have the the Ronin and Agat are reborn at this at, during you know in a freak accident. Well, so we're going to talk about the um, what happens. How does how does um, the Ronin go from Feudal Japan and end up in 21st century New York. Well, uh, it, it all has to do with the demon sword, the, or the, I yes. guess I uh, that's what I'm trying. I'm, I'm thinking about it. it's like how the hell did they do it? Now I know I know what happens is again I I'm trying to remember they don't have the sword on them, but somehow it gets involved with the circuitry of that bio circuitry that they have there. Yes, and um, okay, so. Uh, now I'm going to explain it. So the the hub that they live in, that kind of like biological uh, dome that they live in, all all these uh, people, the Aquarius Project, it has its own central computer. They don't call it artificial intelligence; they call it like uh, 
right. personal computer or something like that. And uh, it's called Virgo. And Virgo runs the station. It, it basically, uh, they call it the, the artificial, oh, I'm sorry, sentient, sentient, computer. sentient computer. Yes, sentient. sentient computer. And Virgo um, runs everything in the base. Uh, there's a, uh, there's Casey McKenna, who's head of security. So she runs security, but Virgo helps her run security. Mm-hmm. Virgo talks to Billy. Billy starts telling Virgo that, like, you know, Billy thinks Virgo is a friend. Right. And Billy's like, man, I've been having some really weird dreams lately. And she's like, oh, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, I've been dreaming that I'm a ronin and it's feudal Japan and I'm fighting a, a demon called a god. And she's like, oh, well, that's really strange, Billy. Why, why don't you tell me more about these dreams that you've been having? And so she, um, she's able to get into Billy's head. She makes him go to sleep. And she starts seeing the dreams like they're her dreams, the computer's dreams. And they, it, you, you, the whole story that we talked, we just broke down like a few minutes ago, she sees this all. And then she makes Billy wake up and she's like, how did you get the, like, where did these dreams come from, Billy? And he's like, I don't know. It's just like they somehow got in my mind. And Billy, you know, goes on to describe that um, he feels that when Mr. McTaggart was selling the limbs, the bionic limbs that Billy was making, that he's kind of like lying to him because it's revealed that Billy has psionic powers, that he can mentally control yeah. the, the the circuitry. And that's why it bonds to him specifically because he's controlling it with his mind. And Virgo's like, well, you know something, Billy? It's just like, this is a stepping stone. He's not lying to him because we're working on making sure that everybody is able to do this at some point. And uh, but this is uh, you are a stepping stone. You're going to be important, and that's why that's why it's not lying because you're the beginning of it all. And he's like, okay, I buy that. So, um, as he starts thinking more and more about this Ronin character, he starts to transmogrify into the Ronin itself. And what you find out is the Ronin when he killed Agat, he got a um, scar across his face, across his left eye, I think it was. Then all of a sudden, Billy starts getting a scar across his left eye. And then the um, the circuitry starts molding around him, just like he when he was yep. building his arms and legs. And all of a sudden, he transmogrifies into the Ronin itself. At the same time, a god out of the circuitry gets built into the demon, and they have a fight. And so um, Virgo trying to save Billy, because she thinks the demon's going to kill him. Right. She shoots him down the center of the the complex, which is the sewer system, and puts him down into the sewer. And then um, she causes like an overload in that room, which destroys that set. So she thinks she kills a god. Yeah. But she doesn't know what happened to Billy. So the rest of the story is about, first of all, what did happen to Billy? Because Billy turned in, he was a white man, limbless man, and now he's a... Uh, Japanese man with limbs and samurai armor. Yes. And, and not a sword yet. <coughs> so um, Casey McTaggart, who's security, she hears explosion, talks to Virgo. Like, what what happened? And, um, he, and Virgo explains, there was a, a demon and it, Billy turned into a samurai. And she's like, what are you talking about, Virgo? So she, they're all talking about this. and the, But at the same time, Billy emerges from, like, at the I think it's the end of the first issue, you see Billy emerging from the sewer and he's covered in these Japanese and he's covered in like yeah. all of the stuff. And that's the cover that you see at the trade paperback. I'm going to post this on the website that we read is that final scene in the first issue. I think it's the first issue, maybe the second issue. Um, and then the rest of the story is about finding out what happened to Billy. 
Uh, what happened to the demon? Does the demon come back? Well, of course, the demon comes back because there's still six issues to talk about. <laughs> Five more issues of Five fun. Five more issues of this. So we, what we decided is, uh, we mentioned it before, it's like, are we going to make this into two parts? Well, well yes, we're definitely going to make this into two parts because we there's still a lot of the story we want to go over. There's still um, kind of a lot of influences that we want to talk about. Right. So we decided we're going to end here, and um, which is a little bit early, and then we're going to start part two of this podcast, and that will be our final Dystopian Futures podcast. That's right. So, so next week, issue... It will uh, be, it'll be, we'll be celebrating the 4th of July and... The end of the dystopian future. That's right. Yes, and we'll bring the in rise of the Amer- the rise of the American century. So, Woo-hoo. thank you very much for listening to part one with us, and we uh, look forward to talking to you about part two next week.